my story is one of helping lead a company that's pretty early in a digital transformation stage, not the bleeding edge. What we learned was the Kevin Costner movie, If You Build It, They Will Come, the field of dreams, is not necessarily the case in e-commerce. You have to drive adoption. You have to have a great product that makes something better for customers to use it, prefer it, and stick with it. But also you got to do some hand-holding with some of these customers that have been doing things the same way for a long time. And digital transformation is about leaving an old state of affairs and moving to something new and better. But change requires support and communication. No digital transformation is the same. But when a massive B2B organization embarks on that journey, you better believe there's a lot of lessons that can be learned and applied to any other company. That's why I wanted to chat with the former chief digital officer at Univar Solutions, Ian Gresham. He led the digital transformation and e-commerce implementation at this $9 billion multinational industrial distribution business. Yes, $9 billion. Look around at some of the things around you. Makeup, dish soap, skincare products, solvents for your cars. I don't know where you're at right now, but take a look around. Univar probably has a part to play in the ingredients that make up those products. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Ian tells us all about the experiences of bringing a massive organization into the world of digital commerce. Plus, he reveals some of the biggest learnings from that experience that he's now using as an executive advisor to multiple businesses. For example, how should e-commerce leaders frame the building of a platform to get buy-in from the top down? And what kind of strategy should you implement to drive adoption of your platform? Interesting enough, it's a combination of moving fast, but also taking it slow. Tune in to learn exactly what that means. Plus, Ian shares more tips and discusses some of the insider details on the projects he's currently working on. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnextincommerce. All right, on to the show. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. everyone. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is Stephanie Postles, your host and CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Ian Gresham, Chief Marketing Officer and Digital Officer, and currently an Executive Advisor to multiple businesses. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Stephanie. It's great to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I just was looking through your background and we did not cover it on our call. I saw you went to University of Maryland, which I am from Maryland. So... That's right. Go Terps. You're the turtle. <laughs> this is already off to a wonderful start. Now we have that connection. I love that. So I wanted to kind of start with your background. I see you've been in a lot of marketing roles and I wanted to hear, you know, how you got interested in marketing, what that journey looked like. Yeah, sure. I'm, I don't remember exactly how uh, marketing became an interest. You know, in business school, I was looking at a number of things, but um, I think perhaps it was the fact that it's pretty people oriented. It's sort of an extrovert function. Uh, in business, if you will. And um, that was pretty exciting to me. And there were some pretty cool businesses in the Maryland area that were that were recruiting at the business school there and ultimately ended up starting my career with Black & Decker. Nice. I worked on uh, the DeWalt brand and it's just a great place to learn a ton of great marketing and sales skills and get out there and interact with the world. They put you out there on the street, you know, selling and mm -hmm. talking to real people very quickly. And it was a lot of fun. 
Are there any lessons from Black & Decker where you still use them today or you think back to, you know, advice you got or campaigns you were running or is it completely different now? Well, I mean, I guess I think that for one, they set the standard very high mm -hmm. for brands to uh, create excitement and create products and experiences that their customers love and are loyal to. You know, we used to get on the DeWalt brand, we used to get um, pictures from people who had like DeWalt themed weddings. Mm -hmm. I have had the good fortune in my career to work on a few other brands like that with Craftsman and later uh, at Sherwin-Williams, we had a brand called Purdy, which is a, a brand of paintbrushes and applicators. They make these paintbrushes here in the US by hand and painters can tell a Purdy in their hand when they're blindfolded. They know the feel of the wood, wow. they know just how these things feel and work and they believe in them. And anyway, to be able to work on a brand like that at Purdy, we, we got a video of a guy who had a funeral for a, a paintbrush that he had used for years and years when it finally just wouldn't go any further. He uh, filmed a little memorial service and buried it in his yard. Oh so my gosh. anyway, DeWalt's the same way, Black & Decker, they just set the bar very high in terms of brands that create amazing loyalty and amazing customer experiences, which I have tried to carry through uh, my career as well. All right. So I want to dive into your time at Univar because that company is obviously huge. I think it's what, $9 billion company, Fortune 500, yeah. 9,000 employees ish yeah. or so. Yeah. So I want to hear about your work there. Um, like first, what is Univar and what did your role look like there? Sure. Uh, Univar, now Univar Solutions, uh, is a pretty global, multinational uh, industrial distribution business. So very B2B. We sold chemicals and ingredients into many different industries. Mm -hmm. Everything from food ingredients to food manufacturers to um, ingredients to personal care product companies like cosmetics companies, shampoo, sunscreen, you know, lotions paint and coatings, adhesives, industrial use. It was just Wild. super diverse customer base. Yep. Thousands and thousands of customers, hundreds of thousands of product, um, and just millions of transactions, right? Lots of repeat business. Some of the, some of the products we sold were very commoditized. Mm -hmm. Some were highly specialized and patent protected and exclusive ingredients that took a much different sales approach and the customer experience around that uh, was very different too. So. Mm -hmm. so what was your role when you first started at Univar and then where did you transition to over time? Yeah, so I, I spent a couple of years as the first CMO uh, at Univar and put in place the first global corporate strategy, um, built on a lot of the core marketing frameworks with market research, with uh, brand standards, um, articulating our value proposition, enhancing the value proposition, and aligning how we were communicating that and the brand identity globally. Somewhere along the way, I picked up a uh, responsibility for customer uh, e-commerce. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of years into it, the CEO talked to me about this opportunity to become the first uh, chief digital officer. And uh, when we had that conversation, he made the point that he really didn't want a technical person in this role he wanted a commercial person in this role who could think about value creation and how we leverage digital to create value for our customers and suppliers and to differentiate ourselves in a pretty fragmented marketplace with a lot of competitors of all different sizes. Mm -hmm. So to me, this was really exciting. If I think about my whole career, you know, I'd spent time in these companies like Black & Decker, Sherwin-Williams, you know, companies that made mostly consumer-facing products that really thought a lot about innovation. And then to make the transition into B2B distribution, one of my observations was innovation was not as common and um, as daily there as it was in these manufactured product companies. And I think a huge uh, opportunity that I saw was with digital, this is a way for a distributor to innovate around customer experience, right? So a distributor doesn't typically make products. What they make is a unique customer experience and they deliver on that better mm -hmm. or worse than their competition. Yep. Digital is a way for that type of business to really create a better customer experience and solve problems that have remained somewhat unsolved. Very cool. So were you nervous taking on not only once taking on a role where you were like, you're the first CMO and now it's like, and now you're going to be the first chief digital officer. Were you hesitant to take on a new role that the company had not had before? 
I mean, when I had the conversation initially, one of my thoughts was, you know, I don't know if I'm the right person for mm-hmm. this, but that conversation around wanting somebody who had the commercial mindset rather than the technical mindset was reassuring. And I think, you know, if you look at chief digital officers as a position and the people that sort of reside in those roles today, there are a few different walks of life that, you know, find people there. And sometimes it's a technical leader. Sometimes it is a commercial leader and maybe sometimes it's a transformational sort of, a, you know, complex project leader type uh, person. So mm-hmm. it's not uncommon to have like a marketer uh, in that type of role. And as I think about marketing as a field and, and CMO as a role, what's clear in today's world is that digital is becoming really important to marketers. Yep. The CMO role in general has become, has evolved a lot and it continues to evolve. And much of the change is around digital and the power of data. So as I thought about this role, to me, it felt very relevant to my career. It felt like the right skill set to be adding to my, you know, to my toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So what did it look like, you know, behind the scenes when you were entering into this new role? Like after you started observing for a bit, what did the process look like and where did you want to evolve it to? We had already started somewhere. We had an e-commerce platform we had just launched and we had some analytics work that was already underway. And we had some thoughts on how digital would help us in supply chain and in some other ways, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea with uh, creating this chief digital officer role was to put it all together, to create a bigger holistic vision, to prioritize and think about which of these things do we really want to do and what sequence do we want to do them in and how, how much are they all worth to us and what's, you know, what, what is the investment going to uh, require? You know, the first thing to do was to start to put the elements together and continue progress or accelerate progress in the things that we already had started. And fortunately, I mean, I really enjoyed a lot of the work we were doing there. It was very customer facing. It was on the commercial side of the business. So we had an advanced analytics team that we um, rapidly were growing. We were doing AI and machine learning. We had a ton of transactional data with very good CRM data. And we were able to make a lot of value, you know, create a lot of value out of that by identifying insights that were commercially actionable. Yeah. Uh, we had a couple of marketing automation systems in place and we were, you know, choosing and moving to one. We were using that pretty effectively to reach out and activate with our customers as well as uh, the e-commerce platform itself. And we were still really trying to drive adoption of the e-commerce platform. And I I guess there seemed to be a lot of pressure to have a website, an e-commerce system, a customer portal where our customers could transact. And there was a bit of a race to build it and launch it. And we did. How quick did you launch it? And like, what did your tech stack look like? What was the perfect fit for a company of, of our size? We were using very heavily the Salesforce B2B commerce Mm -hmm. um, stack. And that's what we built our our commerce platform on, uh, which was originally cloud craze, then became B2B commerce for Salesforce. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd say we had a pretty good experience there. We were able to launch a platform in weeks, not months. Wow. Um, But that's like super fast for a company that size, because we've talked to a couple of people who are like, oh, 28 weeks, like it's a whole thing. So it was it was incredibly fast. We had both a strong internal team using very good development processes and moving fast. And also we used outside for the build as well. Mm-hmm. We spent some money on it, you know, yeah. um, speed and money sometimes are inversely correlated. <laughs> this was kind of an example, but we built it. Now, I, I guess the story that I think is relevant here, though, is that and, and let me just say, you know, my story is one of helping lead a company that's pretty early in a digital transformation stage, mm-hmm. not the bleeding edge. And I think that looks like a lot of the companies out there yeah. who see digital transformation as an opportunity, but an overwhelming one. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? How do we get our house in order to get going? We just knew we needed a platform and there was a race to launch it. We launched it. And what we learned was, you know, the uh, Kevin Costner uh, movie, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. The field of dreams is not necessarily the case in yep. e-commerce, right? Um, it takes, uh, you have to drive adoption. Uh, you have to have a great product that makes something better for customers to use it, prefer it, and stick with it. But also you got to do some handholding with some of these customers that have been doing things the same way for a long time. And digital transformation is about leaving an old state of affairs and moving to something new and better. But change requires uh, support and communication. A lot of, and, and honestly, we had to do some 
hand-holding with customers to show them what's possible, show them how easy it is. And then once they used it, a lot of them felt like, yeah, this is great. I like this. I didn't know this is that easy. You know, they're yeah. just not even open to thinking about something new because they have a habit in place. Yeah. How did you scale that adoption? Because when I'm looking, I think you have like over like 100,000 customers. So I'm like, how do you scale adoption? You know, are you giving them training videos other than, you know, the one-off yeah. handholding? Like, what did you guys do to really pull them on board? We did do some one-on-one calls. We had some webinars. We had, um, you know, programs where we were getting our sales force and customer service reps to have the same conversation on scale across all of their customers. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to activate across all our touch points to introduce it to customers and have that conversation with them. And if they needed more support, we could put them on the phone with somebody who could help them, you know, answer questions and demo it. We had automated or sort of recorded demos they could watch online, you know, but all of that still felt like it didn't, it it wasn't as fast as we had hoped it would be adoption. You know, that was one of the lessons that we learned. And I think, um, I guess another thing I would suggest is it's really helpful to know what are your most valuable features and focus them on that first, right? So um, if customers want, need to, like one of our most popular features was having a library of customer documents where they could access at any time. And in the past, they had to call somebody, they had to e- some, email somebody, they had to wait. Mm-hmm. Well, this is 24-7 that they could go ac- access documentation. It's a regular thing that customers needed. So once we introduced that, it, it became a no-brainer for customers to say, oh, okay, that's where I go. Thank you. That's a solution to a problem that I've been less than satisfied with in the past. And I've talked to other companies that maybe handling payments was their way in, where once they started taking payments online and managing payments online, adoption went through the roof. It It was one feature that customers really felt was superior to the old way of doing things, and that helped to drive adoption. So there were a few things like that where we zeroed in on key features. Uh, another key feature that we uh, had a lot of popular um, success with and was highly used on the site was two-click reorder. So 80% of our business was repeat purchases. Wow. So uh, for a customer to log in and then see their last several orders and be able to immediately access those and reorder yep. turned out to be a very popular feature. But I guess for a company starting... And the work that it was important to do is to really think about the customer journey today and what are those moments along the customer journey that you can make better quickly and focus in on those and try to drive, uh, create the right solution that'll drive adoption around those features is my, my takeaway from that. Yeah. I mean, I, that's such a good reminder for like a platform. Can I, I would see overwhelm, you know, a lot of people, if you try and throw all the features, I mean, most people are probably not ready to be a power user of a brand new platform. And they're like, I want to know every single feature on here. So just presenting them with the things that are probably pretty uniform up, like you said, payments are a big thing. Reordering is a really smart way to get people in the door and then, you know, start maybe dripping out the extra features that would overwhelm them from the start. Another way to, I mean, I would take it a step, I would take it further upstream than that too, Stephanie, which is to say, you maybe you don't need to build a platform with all of those features on it out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And if you take a true MVP view, focus on what are the moments in the customer journey that you can digitize successfully and give them a superior experience and start there. Maybe you don't need as many features on your platform to start with, but build something that does that does perform very well and earns their adoption and then add other features as you go. Um, so yep. beyond adoption, it's even how do you start faster and get out of the gates with some traction on it earlier? Did you have any surprises from either customers or maybe like your internal employees who you were also trying to you know train up on this new platform? Anything that you look back and you're like, oh, we should have probably done it this way or, you know, we could have avoided this if we would have approached it a little bit differently. Boy, there's probably a good list of things that we would have, you know, we learned along the way yeah. by, uh, by doing. And I guess I would say... One of my biggest takeaways is probably we could have started smaller Mm -hmm. and been a little more rigorous or embraced that MVP concept even more, right? Rolling it out to like a pilot group type of thing, like smaller in that sense, like don't do it to everyone. Less complexity to begin with, Mm -hmm. right? Make it an even simpler platform and prove that that you can drive adoption around that. It's easier to explain. It's easier to build. And then there's less to change and iterate as you learn more about how to make it an even better platform. But one of my takeaways, I think, is really embrace that idea of MVP. Like you can think about um, narrowing the scope of the customer base you launch it to. You can think about limiting the products. Mm -hmm. 
You can think about uh, a lot of things to make it smaller and more manageable and get it out the gate and just have data coming in on what's working and how is it generating value and then build complexity around that. You know, know what works and build on success. And, and this is what makes it intimidating for people who are starting the journey is um, seeing the complexity of all the problems that need to be addressed or yeah. all the features yeah. that you need. If you compare yourself with Amazon, yes, it's going to be a very expensive, very big project, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't necessarily need to have all the, you know, all of the features and benefits to start with. Start small, move fast and work in the world of results to understand what's working and how to, where to double down on success and invest in scale, you know? Yeah. How, how would you get your leadership team to agree on, you know, here's the five features that we know that maybe 80% of our customers want. Like, how do you get everyone in the same room to all agree when everyone probably has very different customers and they've all heard different things, even if it's like one off, they're like, I know this is important to a customer, you know, that is very big revenue wise for us. Like, how do you, you know, get them in the yeah. same room and agree on something? Well, first, I think it helps to start with a, a long-range vision. I guess one of my other learnings would be that I've seen companies and that become system-focused. Like, we need a platform. Let's build it. Let's turn it on. It's going to cost us X million dollars and take a year and a half to build. Yep. And they think about it as a project with a start and an end. And the reality is you need to just think about how fast can we get to the starting point and how do you make that as fast and reasonably good as possible with your MVP And then assure people that this is not a project that has a start and an end. It is a uh, journey that has a starting line. And MVP is sort of how you're racing to get to a starting point. And then a multi-year, potentially perpetual journey of building that out. Uh, I think when you get the team in the room, you got to have some data. You need to have data around your customer segments, Mm -hmm. around their preferences and needs. You need to sort of have an understanding of the customer journeys that exists. And I think it's important to realize that it's easier to digitize simple processes than complex ones. So there's a logic to, we got to start small. Let's take the, let's take recurring purchases with existing customers who know exactly what they want and they buy it regularly. Mm -hmm. How do we just automate a repurchase? That's super simple. The customer would prefer to do it that way anyway. And later you get to things like troubleshooting or like selling uh, differentiated products that are first time purchased to a customer that has a high performance need or, you know, like leave the high value add complex work to people and start with simple processes, add complexity as you go. So between using real customer insights and the logic of what is possible in the digital world in terms of solution creation. And using a long-term, like a three to five-year journey map or, or a journey roadmap, um, you can assure people we can't get to you first, but these are the building blocks that we have to put in place mm-hmm. in order to get to that level of complexity and you know something that serves that unique customer need. But there may be some things that will never be digital or yeah. in, in the foreseeable. They're just too complex and too, they don't have the scale. You know, You may have some one-off customer problems that only occur several times a year, and it just doesn't make sense to invest the kind of cost in a digital solution for some things. And and people might need to hear that too along the way. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. What did the change management when it come, came to like employees look like? Did, was there any pushback? Because I could see, you know, as an employee being like, I always talk to my customer like this. We're on the phone. I do the order for them. Like we have this relationship. Don't mess with that. Like what was that like behind the scenes trying to, you know, train the employees up, get them on board, 
and what kind of things hurdles yeah. did you experience with that? So uh, I think there are two great things to uh, discuss on that. And great question. First, I would like to talk about um, Agile and how Agile played a role in adoption um, in our own customer, our own uh, employee environment. And second, really, we had a very robust change management approach going into place at uh, Univar Solutions that is worth talking about. So first of all, Agile. This is where I became a real believer in Agile. And Certainly, there was a lot of resistance. There were salespeople who said, I don't want anybody touching my customer without me knowing about it. You shouldn't go take them a price or an offer or anything yeah. like that without yeah. me approving it first. A lot of businesses out there are like that still today. And so there's a lot of trepidation about change. And you know, we just had to find a supporter somewhere in the business who believed that they had an opportunity. And the reality is that the, the speed you can move um, in digital is an, is an opportunity. So we could touch the entire national customer base for a given product in seconds where it might take weeks for our traditional sales force to get out in front of those customers. Yep. So we found somebody who wanted to work with us and try and experiment. And we put together a plan to target the right customers with the right offer and get it out there via marketing automation. We started at a very small scale and it was, to be honest, so small, we knew going into it, this is not going to have moved the needle at all. It's mm -hmm. just too small. Everybody was being too cautious. Um, but we ran the experiment and it came back and sure enough, we just didn't have enough scale to get any, any movement. But that was what we learned from it. We took it as a learning. We started too small. We need to open up the target zone here of customers. Uh, so the second trial we did very quickly with a larger customer base, and we started to see some promising results. And we picked up a few other learnings. And so we quickly ran a third iteration of it. And by that time, we sent this experiment out, this message to customers, and we got real traction on it. And so the conversation, which started from, wait a minute, I don't know, why are we messing with customers without salesperson involvement to within about three to four weeks, having results that were very promising, um, the conversation flipped. Mm -hmm. And the business team was saying to the digital and marketing team, how can we do more of this? What do you need from me? to do more of that because that felt good. Yep. That was a great solution that aligned with my business needs. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, agile, this idea of start small, run real experiments to get real data. And then once you prove a hypothesis about something that works, the discussion about investing in scale is much easier. Mm -hmm. And you actually have a pull for the solution rather than you know pushing it into the business teams. So I think first, Agile is a great adoption tool and a process for working cross-functionally with the rest of the business to help drive adoption of digital solutions. Mm -hmm. And then second, I wanted to talk about change management. And I would say I commend uh, Universe Solutions for the approach here where part of this came in as well uh, as it relates to an acquisition and a lot of change that we were rolling out because we we're integrating two companies. But I guess I would say as companies think about investing in digital, they really think about how they spend every penny and they, they uh, make those pennies go as far as they can. Mm -hmm. It is not natural to say we need to hire people to help communicate mm -hmm. and meaning communicate to and train our employees, communicate and train our, our customers. It feels like, can't we just have existing people have that conversation? Yeah, and, but the reality is we, we did hire a change management leader and we started staffing out change management roles to integrate with customer service, to integrate with sales, uh, and to interact with customers. And um, looking in the rearview mirror was, that is the way to do it. And you might even want to have customer adoption teams or, or cross-functional teams that involve adoption leaders uh, in, you know, throughout the company. Mm -hmm. What did this role look like? I mean, you're bringing someone in, their role is to do change management. Like, what does their day-to-day -day look like? How are they supposed to be partnering with teams? Yeah, so we had a leader at sort of a central level who was thinking about putting together training programs, putting together communication, and coordinating timelines and rollout structures and, and plans, right? Mm -hmm. um, so full-time, they were, now they weren't just working on digital. They might have been rolling out other major changes in the corporation, but digital transformation is something that fits that bill, Right. And so my point is to have a dedicated structure in place, probably with a leader who's overseeing it and potentially ambassadors 
in a variety of cross-functional teams or functions uh, like sales, customer service, sales ops, Mm -hmm. and even customer-facing adoption sort of agents is uh, very fruitful, right? If you've invested and you believe in an ROI that will come with this, then adoption is an important factor that um, limits your ROI. Mm -hmm. I would just suggest that the company starting and going down this journey and thinking about all the investment in systems and infrastructure of, e- of digital, don't spare too much on adoption in, in favor of technology because you will be spending money on technology that's poorly used, yep. right? That it's, it's worth the investment to drive timely, uh, effective uh, adoption and satisfaction with the, everybody in the ecosystem. Yep. So the one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, all these things are changing and a lot of the managers, I mean, I've seen this in the past that past companies I've worked for are like, well, we need more headcount. We always need more headcount, you know, for what's happening behind the scenes here. You just need to throw more people at it. How did you, you know, approach your teams who probably were all saying something similar? I would assume like, did you, you know, supply more heads to try and solve problems or were you like, hey, let's rework the talent pool. Let's put people on different roles. Like, what did that look like? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and the answer is yes. No, uh, no. I mean, certainly you you are thinking about headcount, but this is where, as a B two B business, we started talking about omni-channel and sort of reconfiguring how we handle customer needs in a uh, business that has traditionally been very sales driven and relied on field sales reps, you know, to deal face to face with customers for a lot of things, which many businesses out there still do. We started to think more about these customer journeys. Mm -hmm. They're simple, there's more complex, and there's very complex types of customer journeys or event on the customer journey that needs support. You know, how do you start digitizing from the bottom up, the most simple, and how do you drive adoption of those? Uh, You can build a plan that drives the customer to self-serve options in order to reallocate headcount into new, you know, sort of reinvest it into higher value activities, Mm -hmm. right? From handling regular orders and replenishment orders to digitizing that, and then thinking about how are we using reallocating headcount to digitize more complex processes or to handle more high value added customer engagement opportunities, right? So you can go from customer service handling manual work to more sales reps that are technically proficient and able to go sell a a high value customer on a high value solution, right? Mm -hmm. And then as you digitize, you know, um, as you go up the continuum of complexity with digital, you're continually reinvesting headcount by self-serving, you know, creating a self-serve option, driving adoption, and then moving headcount into a higher value space. Well, that's great. Yeah, I can see a lot of companies struggling with that now and thinking like, how do I put, you know, these people in new roles and then train them? Like, is it worth all that? Or should I hire someone who's already done this before? Tricky place to be, but I like that yeah, idea yeah. of. And so you, th- you can think too, and in today's world, post-COVID, I think there's a continuum from digital to sort of inside, or let's say digital customer service inside sales, mm-hmm. and then your outside sales or national accounts, sort of that sort of hierarchy of the types of resources you're applying to the, uh, against customer needs. So the inside sales team becomes an even more potentially a bigger team. They make more calls a day than an outside sales rep can. Mm-hmm. Um, and in an omni-channel environment, they have the tools that you're investing in with, with e-commerce and digital to be even more efficient and have more intelligence at their fingertips yep. to handle those yep. customers as well. Thinking about intelligence at your fingertips, I want to shift back to the topic of AI. I know we mentioned it earlier that you guys are starting to experiment with that. I mean, you have you know a really big catalog at Univar. You have high frequency of transactions. A lot of stuff going on. What did that look like introducing that into, you know, some of your processes? Like, yeah, what did that world look like? Yeah, sure. And let me say, I am such a huge believer in AI machine learning mm-hmm. and the opportunity here. And that is, this is sort of a revolution that's just starting. And we were building out uh, AI machine learning uh, use cases and deploying those and integrating them uh, with our entire sales and customer service ecosystems. First, if there are companies out there that are wondering about this, I would say a lot of people quickly go to debates about is it AI or not, or is yeah. it just an, a formula? Or And I saw um, a couple authors of a book uh, competing in the age of AI. I saw them speak recently, and one of the authors said, look, 
you can you can get into a debate if you want to. I suggest that you just forget about that. It's not even worth debating. The reality is, if you're using uh, algorithms and automation to do something a human used to do, mm-hmm. let's call it AI. And AI isn't all about sort of recreating human sentient consciousness or something yeah. or super complex. More and more, the vast majority of AI application is going to be in super focused problem uh, solving sort of setting. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we were looking at it for. And I would say any company out there that has lots of transactions, lots of customers, lots of products, any of those combinations probably has a great opportunity here. Um, because you've, if you've got the data from transactions, from your CRM system, and, and p- especially if you have a large catalog and you're only selling a portion of that to most of your customers, mm-hmm. there are insights hiding in all that data. Yeah. You know, in a B2B environment, it can be very valuable to understanding and optimizing your pricing. Uh, pricing is hard to manage and there are a lot of variables and AI can allow you to put many variables together and create some really sophisticated ways to monitor competitive things that are going on in regions, mm-hmm. to look at how you're pricing customers across your own business, but bring some timely intelligence and automation to recommending the optimum prices. Um, AI allows you to predict and prevent customer churn. You can put together dynamics across a variety of uh, variables. It might indicate when a customer's regular purchasing cycle is changing enough, or, and, the, and there may be other factors you know, mm-hmm. uh, involved that uh, would indicate that this customer is likely to leave us. We've had a few things that are not correlated with success here and, and retention. Mm-hmm. And certainly everybody has experienced as a consumer uh, going online and seeing, you know, customers like you also bought. Yeah. AI allows you to see um, and make those connections uh, with more certainty and a higher understanding of what's the probability of success on these things in order to invest in automation and, and turning that into a feature um, or marketing automation. So, you know, this was super exciting. And we, we, were, uh, we had success building teams out internally, bringing in data scientists and setting them loose on, you know, different um, business opportunities where they can build an alg- algorithm and then we connected it through marketing automation or e-commerce to drive real, you know, financial benefit and results for the company. Yeah, that's awesome. What kind of insights did you get or aha moments where you're like, we never would have stumbled on that without, you know, building out these algorithms? An example would be that we were able to, you know, we had a customer segmentation model in place, but AI um, created an outcome that had 34 micro segments of customers that was driving certain activity that was really generating value. Mm -hmm. Nobody in there, you know, no human (laughs) could manage coming up with 34 micro segments of customers based on many different variables. That's an example of how AI is able to piece together insights that just humans wouldn't get around to and couldn't connect on the right kind of actions probably uh, with that in place. But if you have, like I said before, if you're a business that has a lot of transactional data, AI might be for you. If you have a lot of customers, a variety of customers, AI might help you. If you have a big catalog that you're trying to sell to a lot of customers, AI might help you. And, and I think that there are plenty of businesses that think it's uh, too far-fetched mm-hmm. or too sophisticated. I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that, it, that it's more within reach than people think. And that that's not just for any one business, but it's already starting to change everything about online merchandising for some businesses mm-hmm. and um, marketing automation. So it's, it's worth diving into. Awesome. So I spent a lot of time diving into Univar because obviously the company is amazing. Your story there, like all your stories are awesome. But I also want to hear about what you're doing today. I know you're advising, investor, like tell me, what are you up to these days? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I've started working with uh, another sort of distribution business that is starting their own digital transformation, a very similar story. And I believe that there are plenty of them out there. Um, but also I've been helping uh, a, a business where I'm an investor that is called Parcel Home. Mm-hmm. And this is an IoT uh, connected device. Um, it's launching in Europe. It's been in Europe for a couple of years and we're getting ready to launch it in the UK. Um, and essentially it's a, a delivery box that you install outside your home on your front porch or out by the street. And uh, it's IoT connected. So with your phone, you can access and monitor it. You can give delivery people codes. Like, so if you were to purchase on Amazon, you just go in your delivery instructions and 
instruct them to use a code on the box. Mm -hmm. And when they get there, they punch in the code, it unlocks, they leave your packages in the box, they close it. Um, and then uh, as you get home, it notifies you, you've received packages today, make sure you go get them. Um, you can enable other people in your home to use it. Uh, and you can you know, set one-time codes for somebody who's just coming by to pick something up or drop something off or you know, set it up as a recurring solution for all your deliveries. I can't believe we haven't had that yet. I'm just thinking about like how archaic, like dropping off a box of Amazon, like there's a $500 item in there potentially, and it's just sitting on my front porch for you know, a know. day or two. I'm like, I had the same <laughs> thought. You know, It's like people buy multi you know, expensive things, and yeah. then uh, the package gets left on your front doorstep. And it feels like really, I think in that situation, it's like, our security is essentially the fact that it's concealed in paper or cardboard. <laughs> and the only thing protecting it is the fact that somebody's not sure what it is, but it's yeah. sitting out there outside your home. Could for be a, while. a baby bottle, could be a high end TV. I don't know. Yeah, $500 <laughs> handbag or yeah. something like this. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we see in, uh, you know, there's some sort of online communities for neighborhoods. Uh, where we see people talking about packages, package theft. Mm -hmm. We know that's an issue. Oh, I know that from being in the Bay area. <laughs> Weather is an issue. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if it's left outside and it, uh, you have precipitation or things like this, it can damage packages. I, I think now there are places where it's just not okay to leave the package because of threats of, of theft or something. So they have to ring the bell or, or knock on the door and interrupt. Now, what are, you know, Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams or whatever, you know, online mm -hmm. meetings and uh, that kind of, uh, so, so it's, it's a nuisance as well. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so this is a startup business um, that has, you know, been active in the Netherlands and Belgium and Luxembourg and um, launching in Denmark here this spring, as well as UK later this year, um, and really direct to, direct to customer. So, you know, building out lead generation, um, assets and processes, a sales and marketing funnel and the processes to support that. Um, and thinking about, you know, as many companies are now living in an almost purely digital environment and interacting with customers in that way. So, yeah, that's awesome. Do you feel like you have, you know, certain lessons from the past that you're able to bring to this company to kind of help accelerate, you know, their progress, or is it just such like a different field and startup where you're really having to like kind of relearn the industry and like what, you know, startups are doing versus really large fortune 500 type of companies? I mean, it's, I think it's some of both. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, as you're launching, there's some fundamentals that even startups may or may not have the talent or resources in place. And, you know, they just need to do some of the blocking and tackling about marketing and PR as you're entering a new market. What, how do you approach PR? So there, there are some basics about press engagement, for instance, that I can help with, but we're also learning about influencers, micro influencers, and like how to, it, that's an ever-changing game. There are, you know, um, new sort of marketplaces of influencers where brands can go and evaluate who are the influencers with audiences that matter to me and how do I transact with them or, or um, come to a mutually beneficial agreement to work with certain influencers. Um, how do I scale that kind of work? What kind of investment do I need to do that? But it's an important way that brands are reaching people now. So, and an ever moving target with new platforms, TikTok, et cetera, right? So it's both, a it's a combination of executing on known best practices and staying uh, in touch with what's working today. And in a startup, you have a, uh, a business that in the course of a year, their commercial processes may change many times over. Yep. You add one additional person into the working team and suddenly new processes emerge or people reallocate different tasks. So it's a very dynamic environment in that way, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, I will be watching them closely and yeah, it'll be exciting to see them expand and hopefully they come here. <laughs> yeah. Cool, well, let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Ian? All right. I, I guess I am ready. I didn't even know about the lightning round. Dun, dun, dun. It's easy-ish. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I honestly, I, I think we'll see if, um, so if, our, if we rewind, people had entrenched behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like take my family, for instance. We were buying groceries online from a source. Yeah. 
everything got disrupted. We were a loyal online customer, but certain products and uh, processes changed and we had to change. We had to change to, to adapt to what our needs were. Many customers changed brands and changed their choice of where they purchased these things in the last year. I think the question will be, where do things land? Mm-hmm. Do people stick with the new brands that they've adopted or do brands settle, uh, settle back into a way that they, they win their customers back who've experimented and gone somewhere else? Um, I think we're still in the turbulence of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. So what do you predict then? Do you think people go back to kind of what they knew before? Or do you think now it's so ingrained with the new stuff they've been doing that that's the new way of living? I think more and more people will, people will stick with their new, their new solutions, which I think it, to me, some of that is surprising because honestly, we have bought through Amazon and Whole Foods, which are, I would think Amazon has got this under control, yeah. but for certain reasons, like a target has over delivered mm-hmm. on new solutions and the product assortment where we had stopped buying from them. Yeah. But it's an example where they've got comp- competition moved fast and have different relationships with some of those customers now. So I, I think that businesses better get used to where things are now. And it's going to be hard to rewin customers that they've lost. Yep. Yeah. Same thing with Walmart. I feel like they've stepped it up in a huge way yes. when it comes to like very quick delivery. I ordered a planter the other day and it showed up the same day. I didn't really understand the delivery process because it seemed like just some random person, but I'm like, hmm, my planter's here in that same day, which yeah. made me kind of rethink, you know, where before I'd be like, eh, I'm not going to order from Walmart because it could take like, you know, a couple of days and shipping and all this, but yeah, they stepped it up. Yeah, uh, totally agree. They've done a great job. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? The nicest thing anybody's ever done for me? Whoa, that's <laughs> uh, that's tough. I mean, you mean other than my wife yes. bearing children? Yeah. I would say that we've had a lot I've of that. There, <laughs> that's a big one. That, it's hard to beat that. That is know? a good one. I don't know if I can top that. That's that's uh, that's a big deal. <laughs> Yeah. And as a father, there's this moment where you're like, you know, you're going into that experience and you realize I really don't control anything about the things that matter most to me. I just have to sit here and hope it all goes well and yep. say your prayers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? I think I'd have to have a podcast about, you know, um, what people are passionate about and the links that they will go to, I guess, to, 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 pursue their passions. I don't know who my first guest would be, but I, I think that the most interesting conversations are when you talk to people about stuff that they really love, that mm-hmm. they love doing and that they, that that's what lights people up, you know? Uh, and I think I might start with unexpected guests, you know, people that are sort of somebody in, in your own neighborhood that nobody knows, but there are amazing things happening that, you know, people are, I love these sort of, sort of stories of, uh, you know, uh, real humans of, you know, mm-hmm. kind of stories where somebody just went to great lengths. Oh, you know, I read a great story. That's a good example. Uh, a little restaurant in Baltimore that made like fusion Asian food. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a woman who came to visit her kids in Baltimore regularly, loved a certain dish they had there. And then she came down with terminal cancer. She lived in Connecticut there in Baltimore. And uh, the kids, this woman had uh, called the restaurant and said, Hey, can we get the recipe? We'd just like to prepare it for her you know, in her final weeks. And the owner of the restaurant was like, you know what, where is she, where does she live? We'll be there. And they drove six or seven or eight hours, you know, and prepared it on the back of the tailgate of their truck and knocked on our door and brought this food to her. So anyway, that sort of thing is, that makes for great stories. right? Goosebumps Uh, over here. That's amazing. Yeah. We need that podcast. Someone sponsored this. Ian needs a sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. That's really great. I definitely listened to that. What one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? Hmm. Well, I'm going to, let's focus it back on e-commerce. Okay. And a big question that I don't see an answer to that I really think is a big opportunity is if I think about real world brick and mortar shopping, it's a really, a very rich experience. If you think about walking in a store and walking back to the department you're going to, you pass thousands of products Mm -hmm. and many, many, many opportunities for um, a retailer to sell something to you. Visually, stimulations around with signs, POP, that kind of thing. And digital ain't there yet. Mm-hmm. And it's a long way away from it. I mean, at, at best, we're saying um, customers like you also bought 
or you know what I mean? It's like uh, it's it's a uh, cross merchandising that gets relegated to a side banner or uh, you know below the fold kind of uh, merchandising, mm-hmm. and it's hard to imagine replicating the richness of an in-store experience. But I'm really curious to see how that evolves because it brick and mortar is becoming less and less relevant. It's not going away. It's just that's a rich experience and hard to replicate. And how many online browsing occasions do you need to rep- to replicate or replace all of those stimulus that retailers or brands can present you with in store mm-hmm. uh, effectively? And I, I guess I wonder does without that in place, w- you know, what's the output of the whole system here? Are we do people become just way more replenishment purchase oriented and less new purchase, or, or can we find other ways to effectively? introduce people to products they didn't know they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, definitely something that I'll be watching closely over this next year because I love retail. I love going into stores, especially if they have a good experience, good curation, you know, good selection. Like you can't beat that even in a digital yeah. world. It feels like, yeah, it's hard to get there. You know, the real world shopping can also be a social experience mm-hmm. that online not anywhere close to replicating either, right? So how do you share it with somebody? It's a little different experience online too. Yeah, yeah. How do you go with someone? And yeah, well, that is a great answer. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure having you. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn, you know, it's LinkedIn slash in slash whatever. Ian L. Gresham. I'll link it up. Don't you worry. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. So uh, love to connect with you. Uh, If there's anybody that has questions about digital transformation or you know, how to connect with customers in that way. Happy to have a good conversation about it. But thank you, Stephanie, for having me today. It's been a great conversation. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.